Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Chris O'Fault, the editor of The Toolkit. Today, my guest is documentary legend Steve James. You know Steve, of course, from movies like Hoop Dreams, The Interrupters, and um, that great Roger Ebert documentary that came out a few years ago, Life Itself. His new film is called Abacus, Small Enough to Jail. It's about the Sung family who owns a small neighborhood bank in Chinatown here in New York. And in the wake of the 2008 uh, financial crisis, uh, rather bizarrely, uh, they became the only target of the Manhattan District Attorney in terms of going after financial crimes. And uh, Steve really embedded himself with his family and captured uh, this, this pretty remarkable story. Uh, we recorded this all the way back in October uh, when uh, Steve premiered the film at the New York Film Festival. And now uh, uh, PBS is getting ready to release it in theaters. It's going to start off on May 19th in the IFC Center in New York and then slowly but surely kind of hit all the major cities over the summer. Uh, and then it'll eventually end up on PBS too. It's, it's a wonderful little documentary and I had a great talk with Steve, not just about this film but also um, his career and his, his really unique way of, uh, of, of capturing uh, characters and people's lives. When I, when I think back about your films, like the first thing that always comes to my mind is the characters. And I mean, obviously good characters always make a good documentary, but you have some of the best character-driven stories and I guess some of the best performances I, I can think of, like in the way that like right. I really connect uh, to the characters. I mean, you know, 20 years down the road, I can still think of those, you know, Hoop Dream kids um, who are now my age, of course. But, um, and so I'm just wondering, Part of this is obviously picking well, but I'm wondering, what, what is your process beforehand in terms of access, in terms of your comfort level, in terms of to make sure that you can get something like that? Well, um, once I land on a story that I'm going to film and people I want to film with, I actually start filming right away um, because part of, you know, there are different rule schools of thought about this. I know filmmakers who will spend weeks even months sometimes without filming just to build a kind of comfort level with their subjects and then there's of course the Frederick Wiseman approach who's not really character driven where he's just there in <laughs> films and never interacts with characters so I build relationships with characters but I do it during the course of making the film because I, I have this belief that um, I don't want the filmmaking process to seem at all special or scary or I don't want to spend a bunch of time with subjects and, and then go, okay, I'm going to bring the camera now, mm -hmm. as if that's some kind of, we've graduated like to some start gun or something like yeah, that. Yeah, you know, I don't want to do that. And I'm also, frankly, impatient in the sense that if I, if I, I know I'll miss things that I wish I had captured, you know, they'll say things or we'll, they'll do things that I'll be like, God, I wish I had the camera here. So I just, I've started just having the camera from the start and let that process happen during the act of making the film. And what's the, is it kind of this, let's just see how this goes type thing or? Yeah, and I, and I, I really try to, I, my whole approach is to make this no big deal. Like what we're doing is no big deal. And I don't make any grand promises about what's gonna happen with this film because frankly, I have no idea. I really don't. Um, I don't try and pump them up with like, if this goes well, Maybe it will go to Sundance or, mm -hmm. or you know, or this will be in movie theaters or any of that. I, because I don't want people doing it for those reasons either. I, I, I seek out people who, whose interest in being a part of this isn't driven by notoriety. Mm -hmm. um, 
yeah, it's impossible when you start a film for your subjects to not think about those things. But I don't want that to be the prime driving interest. I, 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 I like, I'm more interested in people who don't want to be the subject of a film than people mm -hmm. who do. But what about also um, their comfort on camera? Is that something where, because you have to have that, right? Yeah. And some people, I mean, I'm speaking for myself here. Right. I, I can't. I can't do it, you know. I, I, you can. I can. <laughs> well, I just maybe I haven't worked with Steve James yet. <laughs> Although my, my guess is my life story wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't bring you to Brooklyn this summer. <laughs> well, I think that again, that's an evolving process, and um, what I find is, um, you know, it's it's interesting if you're a narrative director, and I've done some narrative stuff. It's been a while, but but um, a big part of what most narrative directors are trying to do with actors, if they're doing a more realistic mm -hmm. kind of film, is they're trying to help the actor find something authentic in that character to play, mm -hmm. right? In a documentary, it's not that different, but what you're trying to do is get that person to a place where they can be their authentic selves. And I like to use this analogy that, you know, <clears throat> the first time if you if let's say you you know you have someone that you um, have romantic designs on and you invite them over to your apartment or home for dinner, mm -hmm. what do you do? Well, you you probably spend a lot of time in front of the mirror picking the right thing to wear. If you're cooking, you think, what is my signature dish? You make sure the place looks great. You do all this special stuff because you want to make a good impression. And that's kind of true with subjects in a film, that when they first get started, they think, oh my God, you've picked me to be in this film. Mm -hmm. I need to live up to your expectations of who I should be. And so it can be awkward at first, but what I'm aiming for is the 20th time you've invited me over to your house, where it's just like, I don't care what I wear, the house is a mess, and you go in the refrigerator and get whatever you want to eat because I'm not cooking. Which is another reason to start filming early, right? To, to start get, to early, get, to, to get, get to that place. And so a lot of times in the early filming, I'll find the subjects bending over backwards to do my job even. They'll, they will we'll be out in a neighborhood like in The Interrupters, for example, mm -hmm. and they will be interacting with people they've known for years as if they're interviewing them for me. Right. And, I'll help, and I'll pull them aside and say, you don't have to do this. It, this is a lot harder than if you just talk to them. And so they're looking... I feel like everybody in these situations, they're looking for permission ultimately to just be themselves. And I try to get to that place as, as organically and soon as possible. And I also find humor, humor is a really important part of my documentary process. I, I know that people may say, well, I've seen all your films, I don't think they're that no, funny. No, absolutely, yeah. But there's a lot of humor in, in the films but that It's I've also done. built into the structure and the way that you tell the story. I, I, yeah. I think what you're talking about right now is, is, is humor in the human interaction while filming. In, in the interaction. But you also use that as a, as a narrative tool uh, quite yes. often. I love, yes, I'm always attuned to it, but it's also, I'm talking about that interaction. It's like, because I, I, try, I tell young filmmakers this, documentary filmmakers, I say, if, if you're going to do the kind of filmmaking where you're going to spend a lot of time with someone, basically don't be an asshole. Mm -hmm. Because people don't want to be around assholes. And, and if, even if somebody's agreed to be in your film, if they don't like being around you, they will find reasons to not be around you. And, but if they like your company, mm -hmm. and humor is, I think, a big part of that. I mean, on a film like The Interrupters, we had more laughs on that film with our subjects. It was a joy 
in one in in one profound way, and then in other ways, of course, given what we were filming, it was devastating and you know emotionally you know draw draining for everyone. But had we not had that kind of foundation of like a kind of camaraderie and humor, I don't think we could have done it. That's also how those people I know people that do that type of work. It's yeah. like. They don't. They, do. they they can't be grim. All it, it, no. things get intense, and so there has to be a sense of joy, a sense of, of 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 life. While it's, you're exactly, you know. and and even that, yeah, I think that's where gallows humor comes mm -hmm. from, from people who work in these kind of really high stakes, high stress mm -hmm. occupations. It's like, yeah, gallows humor is is how you deal with it. I've heard you say before um, <coughs> that you're also the type of director who is actually active like you're not you're not melting away while you're no. there you're you're talking about a relationship with your subject but that is also something that is that is ongoing while filming it's like part yes. of it it's 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 your form of directing almost right yeah well, it is your form of directing you're yes. the director yeah yeah i i mean to me it's it's a you know it depending on what's going on i am either more forward mm -hmm. and interacting with the subject um or, or I will pull back. I mean, when when something really you know compelling and uh, you know is is going on between uh, subjects I'm filming and and you know amongst themselves or other people, I'm not inserting myself into sure. those situations. But I will often, at the end of that situation, then kind of step forward and and seize that moment to interact with the subject to get their sense of what they just went through or what they're feeling or, you know, because to me those are the, those are the moments where you get the most candor and, and honesty is in the midst of situations versus talking to them a week or two later about what happened. And, but yeah, I mean, I'm just too much of a social person to be Frederick Wiseman. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I couldn't be him anyway. But I can't approach filmmaking that way. We also different film. I mean, it's just. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing that I don't films. think we talk about documentary filmmakers the way that we talk about narrative right. fiction filmmakers. Where it, that's part of your. He's he's about institutions. Exactly. He's about like the interaction kind of, of on a larger scale inside of an institution. And whereas right. you're a very, I don't know, person like it's about it's it's about a very intimate personal character driven story. And so that. Yeah, and character driven, and often, people who are up against social forces and even institutions, but the, the focus is through their mm -hmm. experience, their eyes, not, not this grander mm -hmm. thing that he does so well. Um, and so for me, that's all about getting inside someone's head and you don't get inside someone's head unless they're willing to let you inside their head and that means building a relationship with them. And do you ever walk? Do you ever, do you, does, do you ever this isn't working out? This is not something, um, <clears throat> this isn't something where the person's comfortable, this isn't something where you're gonna have the access or the ability to make the type of film that you... It's rare, um, it, it happened, in other words, I've never walked away from doing a film mm -hmm. for that reason. Uh, every film I've started, I've completed. You're thinking back, you're, you're making sure. <laughs> I'm trying to make sure. I think that's true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's true. So, but, within a given film, and the most recent and vivid example I can think of was The Interrupters. There, mm -hmm. there was, uh, you know, in that film we follow three violence interrupters, Kobe, Amina, and Eddie. There, were, there was another interrupter that we started out to follow. Mm -hmm. um, there were two others that we tried to follow. One was receptive, 
but it became clear after quite a bit of filming that he could not bring himself to let us into the mediations in the street that he was doing. And ultimately it was like, if we can't see you do that, mm -hmm. we can't make you a main character. No matter how interesting you are, we had filmed with his kids and him in church. We'd filmed a lot mm -hmm. and we kept waiting. And it dawned on me when, when we were out on the west side one night, and there was a double murder and he was working the crowd to try to figure out what had happened. And he just kept telling me to stay away from him, stay away from him, stay away from him. And it just, I, it's like I came away from that night and I said, it's, it's never gonna work. Because this wasn't even an intimate mediation situation with any tenseness mm -hmm. to it. It was just him fact-finding and he was really uncomfortable with it. And so I, we just had to pull back from it. The other guy that we tried to follow was interesting because he, he clearly just, he, had, he clearly on some level just did not want he didn't trust us, and me, I think, in particular, which I've never had happen before, where a subject but you know, that I'm trying to follow is like, like not trusted me. And finally, you know, it's funny, because I talked to my wife, who works with um, a very interesting population <laughs> of ex-convicts, and I was describing his behavior, and she said, convict mentality, you'll never get to this guy, you gotta just stop, and it, that was great advice. A trust issue of just being being in a situation where you're just skeptical of, of yeah. people's motivations constantly. Constantly, that yeah. he would never let go of that. She just said, "You're you're wasting your time with this guy." So I had to get my my wife had to tell me that. <laughs> now, because of the type of director you are, I think I'm right about this. You you almost always have a camera person, correct? Always, except uh, funny recent years with interrupters. I shot the interrupters, and I shot some of life itself, but I wasn't the I shot some of the intimate hospital stuff because mm -hmm. for Roger and to bring Michelle, a crew into the yeah. she, they wanted it to be so but um, um, but mostly I most of my films absolutely I've and I'm guessing it. interrupters is one of these things where it's like you don't know when you're gonna be called or exactly. where you're gonna be going and so you need to I had the camera in my home mm -hmm. and it's like when the call came and we could go I, I I did I could not be in a situation where I had to like find my camera person or find a camera person mm -hmm. to go out we needed to be able to go so but because of that because directing for you is an active thing what is that because you know I don't feel like people and I don't think this just applies to Steve James but I think it applies to other filmmakers I mean you have a very distinct style you have a very you, uh, it's not a style you push forward that's ostentatious but I right. mean you you are a filmmaker and so I'm always curious about that the relationship with the camera person in a documentary from right. a director because you definitely have a sense of how things are going to be shot but it's you know it's documentary it's not right like, so. yeah yeah no it's that's an interesting question it's funny because one of my all-time favorite questions at a Q&A was uh, I think it was when Interrupters was out or something and uh, you know there was this guy in the back of the um, you know the theater and he had his hand up and he had kind of a grimace on his face you know and I was like okay these yeah. Q and A's at these festivals aren't always. It's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a crab shoot. <laughs> so I called. So I called him and I said, "Yes." And he goes, "So you're the director, right?" And I go, "Yes." And he goes, "So I mean, how do you even direct a documentary? Don't you just show up and shoot everything?" And I, of course, I said, "You got me. It's the biggest scam going." Um, but the truth is, you're right. It's like um, certain documentary filmmakers have a style that's clearly presents itself as a style that, mm -hmm. that you go, oh, okay, that's a Earl Morse film. Right, you know, right. that's, that's the way he makes films. 
Because um, he is very formal. He's very, formally, he has very, it's very right. It's he has a very formal sensibility. Yeah. It's you know, it's all his. It's like you, you can sit down and flip through the TV, and if an Earl Morse film came on you, inside of, it's either an Earl Morse wannabe or it's the man himself, right? So that has become a genre. Yes. Yeah, like. So, <laughs> but you can usually tell when it's yeah. not the man himself. So. You know, I think that um, for me, working with a camera person, um, I do, first of all, you have to have faith in your camera people. I have learned over the years that you can over-direct them in situations. And if you do that, you rob them of their own creative confidence. Mm -hmm. um, because then they start to think they can't operate on instinct without you telling them, you know, they, you, you take that instinct away and they think, okay, well, I, I want to do this, but does he want me to do that? And I had to learn that lesson, um, which was a good lesson to learn. And I have people that I work with, have worked with for years. Uh, Dana Cupper, who shot most of Stevie, mm -hmm. I've continued to work with over the years. Um, but interestingly enough, Stevie was shot by three different people, but I think if you watch the film, you don't feel like, oh, this is a different shooter now. Mm. And some of that was their compatibility, and some of that, I think, is... You're the unifying... Is, is I'm the unifying um, person in that process because they have to... I have a certain way I want things to be covered, um, you know, and I, and I pay attention. And so in the moment, if something really serious is going on, I have to be very careful about how I interact with the camera person because I want to maintain that delicate dance of letting them operate on instinct because that's when they'll be at their best but also making sure I get what I need because mm -hmm. I know in post what I need for editing because I also edit so I'm very attuned to how something is being shot to make sure I feel like I got what I need. And how do you think you, I, I've definitely seen you grow as a filmmaker but I'm curious and I also feel like I do have a sense of your personality be, you know, not your person, you know, not right. at home, but the personality that you bring to your films. But I'm curious, how do you, I mean, clearly you've gotten better. I mean, you were. I hope so. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean Although, Hope, Dreams is, Hope Dreams is an amazing thing, but I mean, like you've been now making films for, you've been at this for, for decades since. And how, how do you see yourself in terms of um, a filmmaker having evolved and grown? Well, first of all, I think I, I've, as the years have gone by, I've stretched myself by trying different kinds of films than Hoop Dreams. I mean, mm -hmm. I, you, you can look at my work, if you have seen much of it, and you could say, you know, Hoop Dreams and The Interrupters mm -hmm. and Stevie only in this, not really Stevie because it's a very personal film. Because you're in, you're. Because I'm in it in a very in big it, way. Yeah. And so that doesn't even fall into that. But Hoop Dreams, The Interrupters, if you've seen the New Americans, this this miniseries that we did, you know, um, these are films that fall into a certain kind of category of of spending time with people, following them in their daily lives, and you know, and making a story from it, uh, and they have a certain grittiness to them, um, and I love that. You know, that's probably the heart of what I love the most. But I've also done films that have me in it, like mm -hmm. Stevie, um, that are um, complicated morally and ethically <laughs> as filmmaking. And um, you felt that while you were making that. Absolutely. And that's why I felt it was important to address it in the film. Or uh, the ESPN film I did called No Crossover, The Trial of Alan Iverson, in which I'm in it, but in a very different way from Stevie. 
And, and I never started out my film career thinking I'd be in my films. I, I, I didn't have Michael Moore aspirations at all. all right. Well, that was, I, I love that. It was, it was your home. It's Virginia, yes. right? It was, it was hold on, Steve Jeans isn't from Chicago? That's right. <laughs> I was like, he's got, a, he's got this hometown in Virginia. I, I admitted it, yes. <laughs> but, you know, but then even films like Life Itself, which is a biography, mm -hmm. but it's still, I, I guess what I'm saying, and, and Abacus, which mm -hmm. is a courtroom drama in, in one way, clearly. So these are films for me that stretch myself as a filmmaker. They're different than those other films. They have elements of those other films in them, um, um, but they are different films. And, uh, and so for me, the, I think the way in which I feel like I've grown as a filmmaker is, is that I have tried to stretch myself aesthetically in terms of how I approach stories and not want to just do the same thing, mm -hmm. you know, not just want to like, okay, every film I'm going to do, I'm going to embed myself intimately in a story and follow it for two, three, four years. You know, maybe if I'd done that, it would have been better for my career. I don't know, but. Probably not your family though. But not my family, <laughs> you know, and, but I didn't want to do that. I mean, right. that's the thing. It's sort of like, I feel blessed, and, and I'm not a religious person, but I feel blessed that I've had this opportunity to stretch myself. And I've, one of the things I've learned over the years is you know, the funny thing about Hoop Dreams is, is that um, we were, you know, the documentary gods smiled on us in terms of those stories mm. to a remarkable degree that doesn't happen very often in a career. If you get it once, you're lucky. I do feel like they have smiled on me numerous times, mm -hmm. but the degree to which it smiled on me in Hoop Dreams I've learned over the years about how to try and make films that hopefully work and resonate and have impact where you don't have so much of, mm -hmm. of everything working in your favor, where you don't have a strong narrative story, like The Interrupters doesn't have a narrative story, or where you have to do without and figure out how do you tell a story. Abacus, we're not in the courtroom. We're not even in the... Uh, this is not going to be a great sales job for people to go see it, but we're not in the courtroom. We weren't allowed to. We tried. Yeah. We weren't even in the defense team's interactions with the family. They, 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 I tried and tried and tried, and they would not let me in. And we certainly weren't in the prosecution deliberations. So how do you tell a courtroom drama with such limited access? Well, we did. Right. Hopefully people like it, but... To me, a lot of what filmmaking is, ultimately, is how you deal with what you don't have, right. not so much how you deal with, with all that you do have. Well, I, I think I've learned that over the years. It also seems like, I know you're saying The Interrupters doesn't have, you said it doesn't necessarily have a story, but both that and Abacus, it strikes me that they have an inherent conflict. They have an inherent protagonist yes. striving and up against something. I mean, certainly going up against the gun culture and right. the violence in Chicago is, is, yes. is, is, is it's dramatic. Yeah. And certainly the David and Goliath story of Abacus right. is, and, and so so even though you don't know where it's going, right. it, it's got a story that you, in one way or another, is going to at least propel it forward, Absolutely. right? And, and so. Yeah, well, with Interrupters, though, it was interesting because Alex Kotlowitz, who was my partner on it and mm -hmm. who is a really terrific writer of nonfiction, I remember at one point, some months into it, after we'd been filming, he was like, I'm really worried that we don't have a story here. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know what? We have to embrace that. We have to embrace the fact. I said, basically, I think what we're doing is we're doing a year in the streets of Chicago with these three people, and wherever that takes us, that's where we go. And that's what that film is. Yeah. But it's, it's liberating at times. Yes, there's inherent drama, 
but to me as a filmmaker, the, you know, as wonderful as the narrative arcs of Hoop Dreams were, mm -hmm. you know, of course, I'd, you know, everyone loves that. There's something profoundly liberating about not being a slave to narrative. Or seven years of together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know what the funny thing is? In 13 months, I shot more on the interrupters than we shot in four and a half hours wise than we shot in four and a half years on Hoop Dreams. And then, so it was this profoundly intense mm -hmm. shooting experience that I will treasure for the rest of my life. That's, it's, it's an amazing film. Oh. And, and, and also something that just keeps resonating. I mean, un, unfortunately, yeah. and, and, and in particular Chicago. Yeah. Um, the new film, I'm curious, I think I have the answer to this, but you know, you're, I think you're entering an ongoing story, right? Like, so there was a little bit of a, which I think might be a little bit different for you in the sense that there's a little bit of a speed thing, I'm assuming, like when you got involved. So yeah. I, where was, and maybe this is a good way of talking about the film too, is like what was the state of what was going on with the Sung family? And I mean, first off, we should actually, because we're going to put this out the week before yes. the film comes out. So so the, the premise here, a, a small family bank, 2000, it's 2008, and they're the in Chinatown, a community bank, I think small small community loans, right? And it's the one uh, bank that the Manhattan DA decided to go after posts. Yeah, in the wake of the two, so the, 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 so what happened was the 2008 crisis came, mortgage crisis, all these mm -hmm. big banks, right? Almost crashed the world economy, not just the US economy. And out of that, some individuals got indicted, mm -hmm. but no banks got indicted because they were all big and deemed too big to fail, right? Mm -hmm. And so, too big to sue. And to, <laughs> yes, right. And so, so what happened is, is that at Abacus in 2009, they discovered some fraud within their loan department, in particular this one individual who was engaged in fraudulent activity, and they fired him. And then they decided to conduct their own internal investigation and fired some other people. And then they reported it to the regulators. And it eventually found its way to the DA's office. And so in 2000. And they reported it. They, re they self-reported. They, they triggered this. They self-reported, yes. Yeah. So in 2010, the DA's office started to look into them. In 2012, they formally indicted them. And then it went to trial in 2015. So it was a five-year ordeal. Oh, see, I don't think I, you do a good job of time compression and yeah. storytelling, because I, I so I'm sure that's in there, but, in I there. Don't, but in watching it, it, I don't think of it, as, it. A, uh, right. as a drawn out. It's right, quite that so, drawn the, out. so the trial, so we came into the trial, we came in at the, at the level of when the trial was underway. Mm -hmm. um, and at that point, we, that's where we entered the story to tell the story, but of course, through interviews and, you know, in archival footage and such, we're able to kind of bring you up to speed to that moment. And the, the, the main body of the film, of course, is the trial itself mm -hmm. and, and the impact that, and as it unfolds, as well as the impact on the family going through this, this ordeal. It's a, it's a remarkable film. Um, and it, it, it's kind of very, it, unfortunately, once again, very unfortunately timely. <laughs> it, 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 yeah. it keeps resonating. Um, you know, and I, I'm thinking not just of your films, but I'm also thinking of uh, Carter McQuinn, the, yes. the wonderful Chicago, uh, celebrating 50 years yes. all over the place. I mean, by the time this podcast comes out, they'll have already, I think, done all their big, um, big kind of tours to the big places. But, you know, 
I'm trying to figure this out in my head, but you know, you I think are coming at this from a very distinct position. You know, I think you, it's you have an opinion about this. You have you, you're picking this story because yes. there's a statement, and so, and, and I, I'm also thinking, of course, the history of, of that organization, which I think you could even use the word activist. Yes. But so, it's like almost in the choice of the story, and the and what you're doing is where the politics and the activism comes, but a distinct break with the filmmaking. It does, it, it does a very interesting wall because I think a lot of, there are a lot of liberal, very activist docs that don't, that kind of keep going that whole way. And I right. feel like there's like an aesthetic that you certainly embody, but I think is kind of in the core of, of this organization that you've done so many projects with, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think of myself as an activist filmmaker. Mm -hmm. um, I think what was interesting about this film, but I feel, I feel like um, all of my films have a point of view and, mm -hmm. and I, I like to think that that point of view is arrived at through real inquiry and and filming and putting in the time, not I don't walk in the door with like, this is my point of view. Mm -hmm. um, the Abacus film is different for me and my work a little bit because I make plain pretty early on that we're in the family's corner yeah. on this. Because I decided pretty early on that I believed them and I saw no compelling reason to not believe them. Um, and so they were gonna let us into their lives and tell it from their point of view and so we're with them. I think if I had filmed with them for a week or so and decided, you know what, I think they're guilty, I actually probably wouldn't have made the film. Really? I, I mean, yes, that would have been an interesting film to do, mm -hmm. like to be inside, but I don't think, I don't know that I would have wanted to make that film, honestly. Because I think because on some level I, I would have felt like all I'm going to do is pull down this community bank. I'm going to do what the DA's doing. Right. And I don't know if I really want to do that, honestly. Because I, whether they were guilty or not, and I, and I really truly believe that they weren't, they've done great things in that community. So I don't know if I would have been the guy to do that film, I guess. You know, it's why I don't do exposés. I don't do, I don't, I didn't, you know, Alex Gibney can do Elliot Spitzer mm -hmm. and do a brilliant job with it. I don't think I'm the guy to do that film, right? So. You'd make the one about like what went wrong with him. Like where, 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 where what mentally or emotionally went wrong with him at some point. You know, and so, yeah. And so I, I think that in this case, it's sort of like I decided early on that I truly believe that they're innocent because everything about the way they conducted themselves, who they were as people, mm -hmm. and what they did and how this whole thing got started seemed plainly obvious to me that if they were guilty, they never would have done what they did. They wouldn't have fired the guy. They would have said, you got to be a little, you know, more careful. They would have they wouldn't have conducted their own internal investigation. They wouldn't have reported. I mean, they wouldn't have done any of these things. Mm -hmm. All this stuff that just seems plainly obvious to me. So at any rate, this is a film where its point of view is articulated pretty early on. But despite that, I also feel it's extremely important that we hear what is arrayed against them and from those people if we mm -hmm. can hear it. And that's why we have the DA of New York. And that's why we have the head of the Economic Crime Unit. And that's why we went out and found a juror who actually thought that there was some real guilt there. Because ultimately, and let's not give away the end of the movie, mm -hmm. but ultimately, it's like this trial went on for months and there was a long deliberation. 
So clearly, there were real questions among people on the juror, in the jury room. And I felt like it's absolutely vitally important that you as a viewer understand what that was. Mm -hmm. No matter how strongly I may feel that they're innocent, you need to hear that. And so the film tries to walk that line of being both clearly in the corner of the Sung family while at the same time, as best we can, articulating the case against them. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times activist films don't do that. And it would have been easy to make this film in a much more activist mode and where we don't even give any credence whatsoever to the case against them and just totally make it a slam dunk like how, you know, this is completely outrageous, the most, you know, Mm -hmm. we could have made that film, but it's not really the kind of filmmaker I am and I don't, and I think that would have been the wrong thing ethically as a filmmaker to do. Steve James, thank you so much. Yeah.